The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church in chapter number 9. And as a starting point for our celebration of Christmas in this message today, I'd like to talk to you just for a moment a little bit about what the Apostle Paul had to say about giving. I think we all do agree that Christmas is a time of giving. Uh, We had our Christmas early this year. Uh, We couldn't get all of our family together on Christmas Day, and so about a week ago we had Christmas, so I have none of the pressure I have no, nothing, no gifts to go by and nothing else. It's all done for us. So we already had our Christmas, and there was a lot of giving and, and getting during that time. But the, the, the most joy that, that I receive is watching the grandkids get their gifts. I mean, just giving to them and seeing their eyes light up, especially when you give them a gift that they really like. And you know how that usually goes. You give them the toys and they light up with great expressions. You give them clothes and they get laid aside. Uh, but they really do like the, they, they like the toys. But the giving part of Christmas is always the best part. Uh, the Apostle Paul in this passage has something to say about giving. And unfortunately, this is one of those passages that is often misconstrued, misinterpreted, taken out of its context. Because those that are in the word of faith movement will turn to this particular passage to try to prove their false doctrine. And this is, uh, or their, their doctrines really are not so much about giving, but more about getting. And the wrong motivation for giving is to get something from God. Now, we do know that God blesses us materially, but it is the wrong way to approach this passage to make God your genie in the sky that strokes your discontented, uh, covetous spirit. Now, let's notice what Paul says beginning in verse number 6 of 2 Corinthians. And I know you've been up and down a lot today, but I like for us to stand when we read God's Word, so we're going to do that. Stand as we read our text verses. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse number 6, Paul says to the church, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now, he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the one of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them, 
and unto all men, and by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us as we look into it today, and may we learn something that will help us uh, to, to follow you better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I'd like for you to pay particular attention to the benefits that are expressed by the Apostle Paul in this passage. And we would ask the question about this, is Paul chiefly concerned with material gain? Well, let's look again at verses 8 and 10. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. And then in verse 10, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. And we can see in those two verses that Paul is not chiefly concerned here about material gain, but he talks about cheerful, abundant giving. And he says that in this, there is an increased opportunity for you to give more. There is an increase... In the righteousness of your life, he says. And then he also tells us that as you give yourself to God's work, there's an increase of God's grace as a bigger portion of your life. Now, there's a whole lesson to be learned on that subject. But I'd actually like us to point us into a different direction today. And I'd like for us to think about the gift that God gave at Christmas. Now, Paul here is speaking of giving. He says that God loves a cheerful giver, and he teaches us to be givers. And and he expounds upon this subject, and he talks about the blessings that come from it. And then I love the way that he finishes this particular portion of Scripture because he provides here the greatest example of all givers. In verse 15, he says, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. The greatest giver is God. Now, you may not realize it, but this verse is Paul's breakout doxology of praise. And he was prone to do that. In many other places of Scripture, whenever he started to think about sublime thoughts of God, he might be discussing a very theological concept, and then he just stops and he lets out a shout of praise. And that's what he does here. He thinks about how much that God has given, and then he just burst out with a word of praise for the greatest gift of all that God has given us, and that is the gift of Jesus Christ. And he tells us that God's gift is unspeakable. Now, I want you to notice that word, unspeakable. Paul means that the gift is indescribable, that this is an inexpressible gift. Human tongues, human language is just too little to tell about what Jesus really is. It's inadequate to explain the gift that God gave. There is no human language that matches what Jesus is. Now, we know that there are descriptions of Jesus that are given in the Bible, uh, but those descriptions are an accommodation for us. They're, They're just to help us when we would be totally clueless about who he is. See, we can only go so high in our expressions and we can't go any higher. The Apostle John talked about seeing Jesus. A man never gets high enough for God. And so what John did was to describe the vision that he had of Christ in in words that he would just show us earthly comparisons. And we realize very quickly that the earthly comparisons cannot do justice to an otherworldly God. 
So John uses language in the Revelation where he says, I saw Jesus and his eyes were as a flame of fire. He says his feet were like a brass that's burned in a furnace. He said it's the sound of his voice is as many waters, or as we would say, it was like the roaring of Niagara. And then he said to look upon him was to look just like looking at the sun in all of its brightness. Well, those are descriptions, but they hardly touch what John actually saw. Now, he did the best that he could do, but he knew, and Paul also knew, that the gift that God has given us is indescribable. The Apostle Paul also speaks later in 2 Corinthians about the revelation that God had given him, and he talks about how that he was carried away And he doesn't know whether it was in the spirit. He said, I don't know whether it was in my body or out of my body. But God had taken him into heaven and given him a vision of heaven. He was actually able to see the paradise of God. But when he went to heaven and when he returned from that trip, he said that he heard unspeakable things. There were things that he heard that were too wonderful for him to tell. And Paul gave no descriptions of what he saw. All of it was too incredible for him to put into human language. And that is vastly different from the false claims of those who say that they've been to heaven. I mean, every year, it seems like, or even more more than just yearly, there are books that come out all the time of people who say, well, I died, or I had some of experience, and I went to heaven, and I came back, and I want to tell you what it was all about. And they fill you full of all kinds of fascinating things and all kinds of tales that they tell. But if they had truly been there, and if they were like the Apostle Paul, they would come back and they would have nothing to say, and their books would be filled with blank pages. And that's because the glory of God and the glory of Christ would shut their mouths. They cannot speak the unspeakable. But books without words and blank pages don't sell very well. And so they fill them up with their lies, and they make up things about heaven. Well, God has given us an unspeakable gift, an indescribable gift, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. Now, thankfully, there are some things that were told about him in Scripture, marvelous things that that would just really cause us to stand back in awe and amazement and to break out in a voice of praise, as did the Apostle Paul. So what about this unspeakable gift that God has given. Well, first we can say that it is a mysterious gift. It's a gift that was veiled throughout the Old Testament. It was a gift that was promised to come, but who it was and how he would arrive, that was mysterious. There was no one in the Old Testament who ever imagined that the gift that God gave would come the way that that it did. And this is what we call the mystery of the Incarnation that God became flesh. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we have many passages, uh, such as Isaiah 53, that speak to us of a suffering Savior. Uh, They speak to us about one who would come to this earth and die for sin, but no one really understood what God meant by that. No one really knew that God would send his own son, that God would actually become flesh, No one understood that God himself would become man and that he would take on human form to actually dwell among us. In John chapter 1, the scripture says, and the word, and that means Christ, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became 
flesh and dwelled among us. Now, God becoming flesh was a concept that both Jews and Gentiles had great difficulty with. There are many of the Gentiles who thought that if God became flesh or that he couldn't become flesh because flesh is sinful. They believed that matter was inherently evil. But whenever the scriptures talk about our flesh being sinful, it's not talking about this flesh that covers the bone. What it's talking about is the disposition of the human mind. That's what's sinful. Well, the Jews had trouble with it as well because they would never allow that the Messiah would die. So this gift is indescribable to human minds. It really can't touch the reality that, that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, that the Spirit of God actually became something perceptible to the human senses, that God could actually become tangible. Well, the Apostle Paul, or rather Apostle John, said in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. And he goes on, he says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There, the Apostle John speaks of the reality of Christ being in the flesh, that he is God in the flesh. He said, we saw him, we touched him, we handled him, and we want you to know that this is God who came into the world. And the incarnation of Christ is actually an essential part of our faith. We can't do without this, because in order for us to be saved, in order for us to see heaven, for sins to be forgiven, God's justice has to be served. Sin must be punished. And that's what Christ did when he came in the flesh. He, he came to bear God's wrath for sin, and Jesus did that at the cross. And so he came, and he was made in the likeness of man. He would go to the cross and die as our sin substitute and there to take the wrath that each of us deserved. Now today, when we think about that, that thought is a very common thing. You can speak to people who have no religion at all, especially at this time of the year, and they can tell you what Jesus came to do. They'll tell you that Jesus became a man and that Jesus was born as a baby and Jesus was born in the manger and that Jesus grew up and he lived a good life and Jesus went to the cross and he was resurrected from the dead. But there's no awe in it. There's no standing back in simple amazement at what God did. And so people can recite the facts of it but there, that wonder is not there. And that's not the way that the Apostle Paul was about it, not the way that John was about it, because the incarnation of Christ actually was the pinnacle of mind-boggling events to them. It's too much to imagine that God could actually become flesh and that God would send his son to die. Paul expressed the wonder of what God did, the expressed the, the wonder of what, how God could do this. And, and in other places, in other doxologies of the New Testament, he just thinks about what Christ did, what God did for us as sinners. In Romans chapter 11, he, we have another of those breakout doxologies, as I call them, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, and who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and shall be recompensed to him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. 
So yes, the miracle of the incarnation makes the gift too high for human words. Such a mysterious gift, God becoming man and God going to the cross to suffer and die for sinners. But that's not all of the mystery that surrounds the gift. There is another gift that's extremely important as well, and that is the mystery of the resurrection. Now, the death of the cross would have been a meaningless token if it hadn't been for the mystery of the resurrection. Now, for sure, the Old Testament talks about resurrections. There had been resurrections. Elisha raised the, uh, uh, the, the widow's son to life. Elisha raised a Shunammite woman's son to life. And there's this mysterious, strange thing that's written in 2 Kings chapter 14. Elisha died. Elisha, that great prophet of God, died. And they buried him. And then there was another man that died. And those that were burying him looked up and they saw a band of marauding Moabites that were coming towards them. And so they very hurriedly threw this man that had just died into a tomb. And that tomb was the tomb of Elisha. And when that man touched the bones of Elisha, that dead man came back to life. That's a strange thing to happen. Now, there are other resurrections that are spoken of in the Bible. Jesus himself, before he went to the cross, he, during his personal ministry, he raised people from the dead. But there's one thing that people had never seen and never heard of before, even though they knew the Old Testament stories about resurrections, what they had never seen before is that someone under his own power could actually come back to life and live again. Things like that don't happen. And yet that's what Jesus did. To prove his power over death and to prove that he is the supernatural God, he came back to life. And in that power rests the ability and the hope of all believers to come back to life. You see, the resurrection is a promise, a guarantee that's given to us because of Christ's resurrection power. Oh, isn't that a mysterious thing that the dead can be raised? I mean, we're skeptical about that. That could hardly happen. And it becomes increasingly mysterious when we think about people that have been dead for centuries. Now, if we bring a body in here and we have a funeral for someone and they sat up from that, in that casket, we, that'd shock us to death, that's for sure, and we would be amazed that someone could raise from the dead. But what about going out to the cemetery and finding one of those graves? Uh, I don't suppose you find too many of them here, but back where I'm from in Kentucky, you can find those that are hundreds of years old, graves that are there. And to think that a body that's been decomposed, that its molecules have been spread out into the air, into the ground, sucked up into plants, eaten as food by men and animals again and all of that, how is that body going to come back to life? That is a a miracle beyond our comprehension, a mysterious thing that can happen, but God says it will happen, that he'll bring those bodies back together. Oh, this is a mystery, the awe and the wonder of God's gift, so that Paul could only say this, thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift that God has given. Now, we need to go on and consider a further, uh, the further amazement at Paul at, his, at God's gift by noting that it's also a miraculous gift. Now, everything about the gift is wrapped in the wrapper of miracles. Now, certainly the incarnation was a miracle. The resurrection was a miracle. Christ's entire life was one of miracles. But let me give you two miracles in which God used human intervention. God used people in these miracles. 
The first one would be the miracle of prophecy. Now, that's one of the hardest aspects of Christianity for atheists and agnostics to deal with. How do you explain the many prophecies of the Bible concerning the birth and the life and the death of Jesus Christ? How is it that over a period of, thou- of a thousand years of the writing of the Old Testament, that men who had many times never met each other, who lived over that long period of time, how could they in their minds come together with such perfect agreement about the coming of Christ and give prophecies that tell such intimate details about it? How is that possible? You know, I love the story in Matthew. Uh, the, the men sang about it just a moment ago, and that's where the wise men came to see Jesus. These were men who were students of Scripture. They didn't live in Israel, but they were descendants of schools of prophecy and biblical learning that were started by Daniel and others when they were deported to Babylon. So these men were in the east, and they observed the scriptures. They were students of the stars, of all the miraculous things, the wonderful things that God created. And one night, they saw a star in the sky off to the west, and it was over the land of Israel, and they knew that this was a sign that the one promised had been born. And so they traveled that long distance to Jerusalem to find the child and to worship him. But when they arrived there, they found something that they didn't expect, and that was God's own people. The people that lived in Jerusalem had no idea that the king of kings had been born. Only two miles away from them, the king of kings had been born. And so when they told them about the star that they'd seen, they began to wonder about this, and they wanted to look this up. Where is this child? Where could the Christ be born? And they turned to the prophecy in Micah that said this, in Micah 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And where was Jesus born? exactly in the place written by the prophet 700 years before. Now, this evening in the message, we're going to look a little bit more at that prophecy and what God did to fulfill it. But that's not the only prophecy of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 7, uh, chapter 9 that we read just a moment ago in our congregational reading. There are prophecies in Zechariah and in Malachi, prophecies in Daniel. There's many from David in the Psalms. I mean, you read through the Old Testament and you see it over and over again. I mean, you even go back all the way to the book of Genesis and there you find Jacob, when he blessed his sons, he gave a prophecy about the Messiah that would come. So there are multitudes of prophecies about the birth and the life and the death of Christ. And so Paul and Peter and other New Testament writers, they simply marveled at prophecies that were fulfilled. And there is no way to explain the accuracy of those scriptures without acknowledging the wisdom of the Almighty God, that he is marvelous in his wisdom, so wonderful, too wonderful, that human tongues cannot adequately express it. So God used humans in those infallible prophecies. But what of another miracle that God used uh, humans? What, What about another miracle that required human intervention. Well, the next one would be the miracle of virginity. It's the miracle that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Matthew one twenty three. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. Now, I know that there are people that claim that virgin births happen all the time. 
I just saw this in the paper, I think it was just a couple of days ago, of how many people claim virgin births. Now, a lot of uh, people in trouble, I guess, do that. But today there's, uh, there is in vitro fertilization. There's the implanting of a fertilized egg into the womb of a woman. But the miracle of the virgin birth was, first of all, a miracle for its time because there wasn't anything like that. But more importantly, it was a miracle because this was done without the sperm of a man. I mean, there are no human births without the ovum and the sperm. Uh, This is the only one that there is, the only one there ever will be. And Jesus was born without a human father. The scripture says that Mary never knew a man, that she never had relations with a man. The baby that was born had no human father. The scripture says that the Holy Spirit came upon her. Now, you can imagine that that was information that Joseph was keenly interested in because he was about to to, to marry her. He was going to make Mary his wife, and he found out that she was already pregnant, and he never imagined what the explanation would be. So he wouldn't have believed that if, if God had not sent an angel to tell him about this. Gabriel came to him. Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1, uh, here in the beginning of Matthew is only one of two places that we find a somewhat detailed account of the birth of Jesus. The other, of course, is in the book of Luke. But here in Matthew chapter 1, uh, Matthew tells us about the conception. Uh, let me start reading in verse number 18. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing uh, to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David... Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Now notice there you see prophets again. And the prophet said, verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, why is that so important? Why is it important to us that the Bible says that Christ was born of a virgin? Well, it was necessary so that he would be born without a sin nature. Now, you see, the Bible teaches that the sinful nature is passed on through the seed of the man. Now, every person uh, in the world has a sinful nature because all of us have been born from a human father. Now, Adam's nature was passed on in childbirth, and so if you have a human father, that means that you are a sinner. Jesus had no human father, so that means he didn't have a sin nature And thus, he was not a sinner by birth, nor was he a sinner by practice. And so by remaining sinless, he was able to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, how are we going to explain this miracle? I I can give you the facts of it, but to explain the physiology 
of what happened with the virgin birth? I can't tell you because I don't know. These things don't happen. How the mighty God packed himself into the tiny egg of a Galilean virgin, I have no words to explain. I mean, it's a gift that is indescribable. This is unspeakable. But thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Now, thirdly, the gift that God gave is an indescribable gift because it is matchless, a matchless gift that God gave. Have you ever received a gift that you didn't know what to do with? Over the years, my closet has become packed full of clothes that people have given with gifts that I'm just never going to wear. Now, you may not be able to tell it by looking at me, but I'm very particular about my clothes So I advise you, don't buy me any clothes if you want to give me a gift. Don't buy me any clothes because it'll probably end up in the closet with all the rest of the ones that I'll never wear. And then I've received many other gifts that I'm simply not going to use. Well, the next wonderful thing about the gift that God gave is that is it exactly what we needed. Above all other things, this is something that every person in the world needs. And I can't imagine that you could find any other gift, a gift like this, that would be perfect for all people of all nations at all times in all locations, going all the way back to Adam at the very beginning and extending into the future when Christ shall come again. Nobody has a gift that works for everybody and is needed more by everybody. And why is that? Well, it's because of this inclusive all-important statement in Romans 3.23, where all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why we need it. This is why this gift stands out above all others. Everybody needs it because everybody has sinned and everybody has come short of the glory of God. Now, we say that all the time. You hear that in messages. And let me just tell you, that is no light statement to make. That is a very heavy statement beyond our mind's imagination. It has consequences that that are eternal. This statement, the entire human race, that every person born in the world has been born in sin and is on his way to an eternity in hell. And this gift that God gave, this precious gift, is the one that saves our unworthy souls. And this gift provides the way to prevent you from going to hell. So every person in the world is going to hell, and I don't know anyone in their right mind who would be content to know that they're going to leave this life to go to an unimaginable place of of suffering, of torment, a place that nobody escapes. I can't imagine that anybody in their right mind would say, well, if that's the gift that's going to keep me from going to hell, I don't really need that, do I? Well, you absolutely do need it. This is what makes the gift of God such a matchless gift. Nothing works for salvation. Nothing works for escape from hell but this gift. And if you get nothing else at all from the message today, you need to remember this. You need to remember that the gift that God gave is not a white elephant gift. This is actually something you can use and you desperately need it. And so pursue this gift. Go after it with all the energy that you can. Strive for it as hard as you can. Try to obtain it. And when you strive with all that you can, that's when you find out that all the time it was free for the asking. God said, I'll just give it to you. Now, let me give you two more reasons the gift is unspeakable. 
Now, with this gift, we receive the peace of God. Now, there's several ways that we can speak of peace. I do need to hurry, but this is important, and I don't want to leave this out. In the Bible, the Scriptures talk about giving peace in at least three different areas, and these three areas are, are uh, distinctly given in the writings of the Apostle Paul. So let me quickly give them to you. First of all, the Bible talks about having peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important peace that God gives because the Bible says that we have been born enemies of God. Now, remember what I said, all have sinned, and that makes you the enemy of God. The primary purpose of the incarnation of Christ coming into the world is that you might have peace with God. You know, I'd rather be at war with anyone else than to be at war with God. And yet the Bible says that all people are at war with God. And this is a war that you cannot and you will not win. And the only way that we can have peace with God, the word says, is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this in Colossians 1.20. He says, here's how this peace comes. And having made peace through the blood of the cross, of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Peace with God. Secondly, the gift of God gives us the peace of God. Philippians 4 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God is what calms us and comforts us in trials and tribulations. Now, people will try all different kinds of things to get the peace of God, to get some peace into their lives. Some will turn to drugs and to alcohol, and they find that those things never calm their spirits. All they ever do is add aggravated troubles, troubles on top of troubles, heaping more trouble upon already troubled hearts. Only Jesus brings the peace of God. And then, thirdly, there's peace from God. And we find that expression in the beginning of every one of Paul's epistles. We find it in Romans 1.7, 1 Corinthians 1.3, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Galatians 1.3, Ephesians 1.2, Philippians 1.2, Colossians 1.2, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1.2, 1, 1 Timothy 1.2, 2 Timothy 1.2, Titus 1.4, Philemon verse number 3. All of them have this expression, peace, the peace from God. And you know all the time, every single time, do you know what it's associated with? Jesus Christ. Every time it's associated with Jesus Christ. Now, when we speak of peace from God, we can speak about our salvation, or we can speak about the serenity that's received in salvation. But at this particular time of the year, the Christmas season, we can apply it to society at large, just as the angels did when they announced the birth of Christ. The angel said, and on earth, peace. And what does the Bible say about Jesus bringing peace? Well, Isaiah 2 verse 4 says, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. 
And that's when he comes to rule the world with a rod of iron. All men will be at peace. Now, today we're attempting that. We, we attempt to bring peace through the United Nations. But do you think that the United Nations is telling people about Jesus in order to bring them peace? Not on your life. Because the world hates Jesus. They're not going to think about Jesus as far as peace is concerned. And so peace is never, or Jesus rather, is never in peace negotiations. You never hear him mention. And as a result of that, there is never going to be any peace until the time that Christ returns to this world. He brings peace himself. And so every year, we pour billions of dollars into the United Nations in order to bring peace. And it's never going to happen, folks. It just will not happen because it's not until the unspeakable gift of God returns to this earth that the world will ever see peace. Well, this is a matchless gift. Nothing brings you the peace that you need in all ways like this gift. But I still have one more, and this is the one that really makes the gift unspeakable. It makes it matchless. This gift brings us the matchless presence of God. The angel told Joseph, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Jesus is God with us. And you might wonder, well, how does Jesus bring the presence of God to us? Jesus is no longer here. So how, how, do, we, how do we have the presence of God when Jesus isn't here? Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked on the earth and he chose 12 men to be his companions. And for three years, they walked with him, they ate with him, they slept with him, they became his closest friends. They learned that they had a very valuable friend in him. And and, and you you have to think that there must have been a, a little bit of pride in that because they were the closest companions and others weren't. But they learned from him and they saw what he did and they were so blessed to be in the presence of such a gifted person and especially to be in the presence of God. And they were deeply sorrowful when Jesus had to go away. And when he told them, I'm going away and where I'm going, you cannot come. And so they asked the question that you would ask. Well, Jesus, if you're going away, where are you going and why can't we come with you? We want to come with you. But he said no. And that was disheartening to them because they loved him They didn't want to be without him. But you know what else Jesus said? He said, I'm going to give you something better. You see, while he was here, he was external to them. There were times when they weren't in his presence. They weren't with him when he was on the cross. They weren't with him when he went into the tomb. And so Jesus promised them something better, which was his presence internally. Not externally, but internally, and a presence that they would never lose no matter where they were. And what is this presence that he promised? That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, also called in your Bible, the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So can you imagine a better gift than this? When you receive Christ as the Savior, he is not external to you. He is not God off somewhere in heaven that you hope to see someday, and someday you'll get there. He's just way away from us. No, the Scripture says he is God in you, Christ in you. Colossians says that, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
So he's God internally in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says he comes to dwell with you forever. In fact, the very life that you live when you receive Christ as Savior is permeated through and through with him. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so do you know what makes a Christian different from all other people in the world? It's this, that God lives in us. The Holy Spirit of Christ is in us, and that's a gift that can never be taken away. You'll never lose the gift, because not only do you have Christ, but he also has you. Not only do you have Christ, but he also has you. Now, I have to close with this, but this is, this is a critical point. God gave another gift. God gave his son to us, but he also gave us to his son. Now, here's your last statement on the listening sheet, and if you just bear with me a little bit longer to explain. We are God's gift to Jesus Christ. Now, listen to this, uh, to Jesus as he speaks to his heavenly Father. I want you to turn to one more scripture. Uh, this is in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and this chapter is the Lord's Prayer. Now, you may have thought that the Lord's Prayer is in Matthew chapter 6, but that's not the Lord's Prayer. That is the disciples' prayer. That, that's a prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples and a prayer that he would never pray for himself. But this is the prayer that he prayed to his heavenly Father in John 17. And I want you to listen to the words, uh, the expressions that are here. Verse number 1 says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Verse number 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then in verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now, I want you to see this that the Heavenly Father knew you before you were born. He gave you to Christ when he created the world, and Christ came to give his life for those that were given to him by the Father. Now, there's an important question that you might want to ask right here. How can I know that I am one of those that were given to, the, by, to Christ by the Father? How can I know that? Well, there's only one way. There's only one way that you can know that and that's to trust him right now. That's the only way that you'll ever know this. So what I'm asking you to do today is to receive this gift of God, 
to receive the matchless gift of Jesus Christ, and then you will know that you are a present that Jesus will unwrap at this very moment. You'll know that you're one that was given to Jesus by the Father. So you trust him now, and you prove to yourself the wealth of God's greatest gift. And when you do, I know what's going to happen. You'll praise him. And you'll also say, I can't say enough about him. I I just can't say enough about the feeling that I have and knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. I can't say enough about what he's done for me. And then you'll just have to say, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the word that we've read, for Jesus Christ who came into the world and just this great gift that God gave, the unspeakable gift that he gave to us uh, There's no way that we can express it, and that's why Paul says it is unspeakable. Lord, we pray that you'd work in some person's heart today. Show them that they need you. May they turn to you in repentance and faith and take you as Savior today. And Lord, this would be the greatest Christmas they'll ever have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.